The topic for this evening is the Great Revolt. The first major Jewish-Roman war. We're going to discuss tonight the first half of that war, years 66 and 67, which is the part of the war where there was at least a hope of victory, uh, a glimmer of hope, which led people to fantasize about victory that would become elusive. So, last time we left off with the final procurator, Florus, who was in charge of the Judea from the year 64 to 66, that his tenure was very rocky, there was uh, occasional social outburst, and he did something which was unacceptable. He plundered the temple on the 16th of ER in the year 66. This was in response to anti-taxation protests and uh, attacks on Roman citizens because people weren't safe in the streets. So just law and order was gone. It was chaos. And Roman citizens had been attacked being accused of treason, being traitors against the Jewish people. We're talking about Jews who were Roman citizens, in addition to Gentiles who were Roman citizens. Now, the Jews, in response to the the plundering of the temple, the 17 talents of silver were taken away, they openly mocked Florus and took up uh, collections for him as though he were poor, like they were schnorring for Tzedakah on behalf of Florus as though he's a pauper. They were embarrassing him. And this did not go over well with the administration. He responded by arresting and crucifying key members of the Jerusalem population. So the people erupted in open revolt. Florus had to withdraw to Caesarea, which, as we know, was a mixed Gentile-Jewish city, but predominantly Gentile. And so he escaped the heavily Jewish Jerusalem region. Um, And with... Limited forces in the country prior to the outbreak of war, this was an opportunity for zealot leaders to grab things, to grab fortified positions, to grab munitions. I mean, for example, when the British left in in the winter and spring of 1948, what did the Jews and the Arabs do? They jockeyed for position. Every police uh, 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 base was taken up by one of the two sides because you took positions and grabbed as many guns as you could. That's what the Jews did as the Roman garrison fled Jerusalem. Okay, Menachem, who we said last time, may have been the son or the grandson of Judas the Galilean, the early zealot leader, he seized Masada. Masada had been a fortified position since the days of Herod. And there were weapons there. Elazar ben Hanania, the captain of the temple, ordered that no Gentile sacrifices be brought, nor any sacrifices be brought on behalf of the emperor, which we said last time was like an open declaration of revolt. Who is in the peace party? Who is in the peace camp at this point? Well, who are the Meritzniks of uh, the year 66? So the answer is that the old high priestly line, which had made their uh, accommodation with the Herodians and with the Romans, were against open war on the concern, and this was a, it turned out in hindsight to be very accurate, that if you have open war, what's going to eventually happen? Military defeat. And what's going to go along with military defeat? The destruction of the temple. And the temple is their base of power. Right, forget what will happen to Judaism as a religion. That the rabbis will worry about later at Yavna. But simply from a, 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 an enlightened self-interest point of view, if you're from the high priest, pri- priestly clan, 
So you don't want the Beit HaMikdash to go away. That's, that's where your money is. So they're in the peace party. Also, the majority of the Pharisees, at least in the early going, oppose the war. Because in general, the, certainly the left-wing Pharisees, but even to an extent the right-wing Pharisees, did not want to see uh, a dangerous political gambit being tried. They were always prudent. Don't do anything foolish. Do what makes sense. And what makes sense is we can't defeat the Roman uh, legion, so why wage open war? And the last group who obviously opposed the war were the Herodians. But unlike the high priestly group and the Pharisees, who would fall into line eventually and support the conflict because, after all, they're patriotic Jews, the Herodians are not patriotic Jews. What are they going to do? They're going to fight for Rome. Uh, I mean, the individual uh, figure who's you know, a prince or a king or a tetrarch or an ethnarch, he's going to you know, eat grapes and drink wine, not going to personally fight, but at least his underlings and those uh, mercenaries he has at his disposal will be put towards the Roman legion. And Agrippa's forces later would fight for the, in the siege of Jerusalem on behalf of Titus. Okay. So, that's the, uh, the peace camp. Obviously, the, the rebel camp includes those who had been zealots all along and who had been uh, itching for war for decades, plus those people who felt so aggrieved by what Florus did and by the recent uh, insensitivities of the Romans towards the Jews that they've decided we're going to cast our lot with the Kanaim, with the zealot movement. All right. The... Um, the peace camp turned for Agri- to Agrippa for help against the zealots as soon as uh, hostilities broke out. But Agrippa had to run away. Remember, we said last time he and his sister, quote-unquote sister, were uh, basically kicked out of the city. And they withdrew to Herod's palace. The zealots gained the upper hand and burned down the archives so that no debtors would have to go to jail or be put into slavery. Uh, this was a battle, a social battle, of the poor against the rich, to a certain extent. This wasn't just Jews versus heathens, it was also the rich against the poor. Uh, one of the early goals of the revolution was social, it was the redistribution of landed property by confiscating it from the elites. The Gemara in, in Gittin, uh, to a certain extent, addresses this issue on the matter of the, the, uh, the halakha of sikarikon, of uh, stolen property. Can you steal property? Is it possible to steal property in the halakha? You mean land? Land. Land. No. land. no, land is where it is. It doesn't move. I can steal somebody's gold watch. I grab it off their wrist and run away. But I can't steal land. How can I, in effect, steal land? By pushing someone off the, 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 the real estate sitting there for a while, developing a chazakah, presumption of ownership, and all of a sudden, who's to say that it's not mine? So there, there are special laws that were enacted because of the wartime situation, but in part, the purpose of the war was to grab land, and, you know, like Robin Hood style, take from the rich, give to the poor. Um, the rebels captured Antonia, and Herod's palace. Now, Antonia was the fortified position to the north of the temple, on the top of the temple mount. Uh, It had been a thorn in the side of the Jews for a long time, for generations, because there was always a Roman garrison uh, located there that could suppress, you know, uh, the the holiday pilgrims on the Shlosh Regalim if they got out of hand. 
And we know of too many episodes where there was some kind of massacre or a stampede because the, Ro- the, the Roman garrison at the Antonia uh, came down upon the people. Well, the zealots captured it. Menachem, who we mentioned last time, was the leader of the Sicarii, and he entered like a king, like a messiah, and led the siege on Herod's palace. What happened to those who were inside, who were besieged? Agrippa's troops, who were Jewish, surrendered and were let go unharmed. But the Roman troops tried to escape to other points of refuge in the city, and they were later massacred despite being given the promise of safe passage. So there was dishonesty here and a lot of butchery. Um, The rebels also murdered Ananias the high priest, which is an unpleasant thought. The idea that um, not only are the Romans the enemy, but Jewish collaborators with Rome even including people in high positions, like the Kohen Gadol, who is effectively like the Jewish head of state, could be killed by a fellow Jew. So this is like a Yitzchak Rabin situation. He was a collaborator. Uh, kill him. That's what happened in the year 66. Huh? So some soldiers were allowed to go. Others were massacred. The high priest was killed. Okay. Now, the problem with the, the murder of Ananias, who was not actually the functioning high priest. He had been high priest about a decade and a half earlier, but had been deposed because at that time, guys went in and out of office quickly depending upon who was in political favor. So he, he was a former high priest, Kohen Gadol Lishe Avar. But his son was none other than Elazar ben Hananya. Here we get into a, a tricky situation. What happens when your father is a leftist and you're a, 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 a hot-blooded right-winger? You don't get along. But he's still your father. Okay? So here you had a former high priest who was seen as being a collaborator with Rome, who was executed in cold blood by zealots, by the Kanaim, in the early phases of the revolution. Yet, one of the revolutionaries themselves, one of the leading figures, was the son of that high priest who was just killed. So Hananiah was killed, Elazar ben Hananiah, himself a zealot, what is he going to think about the people who killed his father? (coughs) Not good. Not good. So, he blamed Menachem for the murder of his father. And Menachem, who was full of himself, and according to Josephus at least, regarded himself as a messianic figure and thought he would be king of the Jews upon the successful ouster of Roman forces. So when Menachem came into the temple to worship with pomp and ceremony, he was attacked and killed by Elazar's men. So not only are there left-wingers and uh, Romanophile uh, collaborators who are being killed, but also, if you're a hardcore zealot, yet you have an enemy, you also might get killed. This doesn't portend well for the future of this revolution. If Jews are killing Jews on both sides of the aisle, it's not going to end well. Okay, it doesn't even begin well. So, this uh, was not merely a personal attack. It exposed a long-standing rift between the priestly aristocracy and the laity. Remember, Menachem doesn't have uh, great yichus in terms of the Jerusalem temple. He's not a Kohen. Right? He's a nobody. Maybe his father or his grandfather was Judas the Galilean and his great-grandfather was Hezekiah who confronted Herod. So he has yichus when it comes to the, you know, the right-wing nationalist movement. But he's not with any power base in the temple. He's a stranger to Jerusalem and yet he comes in on his high horse thinking he's going to run the show. He's not a Judahite. 
not a, of Davidic descent. He's not of priestly descent. Who is he? He's a Yisrael who has some some uh, sort, of, sort of kahanis dichus. All right, but that's that's all. Whereas Elazar ben Hananiah, his father was the Kohen Gadol. He could have become the Kohen Gadol. He is the captain of the temple, deciding that not to bring uh, the emperor's sacrifice. He has uh, you know strong credentials at the Beit Hamikdash. So you have the aristocracy of the Kuhuna on the one hand, who would like to control the fate of the nation and this revolution, and you have lay people from the Galilee who basically are looked down upon as amaratsim, as, as ignorant fools, who maybe have you know, nationalist fervor, but that's it. So what happened? The old aristocracy, or representative of the old aristocracy, avenging the death of his father bumps off the guy who's in charge of the, uh, the lay people's revolution. Okay. What happened to Menachem's followers, who were real hardcore zealots? They flee to Masada and play no role until the end of the war. When Elazar ben Yair, who is a grandson of Judas the Galilean, of that family of revolutionaries, and possibly a nephew of Menachem, leads them to a mass suicide in the year 73-74. Okay, so they're, they're basically out of the story at this point. They re-emerge only to die uh, seven years later. Why, why these suicides? Well, they would have all been killed. I mean, when... when, when raped and taken as slaves. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the end for the people at the top of Masada would have been unpleasant if they didn't kill themselves. I mean, it was unpleasant as it is, but... Uh, but it yeah. seems to have been, I mean, again, the story of Josephus at Joppa, that's the way to go if you're going to lose. If you're going to lose, go down with honor. Go kill yourself. I mean, am I yeah, wrong? yeah, no, no, that, that's the way. Yeah, that was the way. Okay. All right. So, halakhically, is that permissible? Which brings us to the question of what happened in the days of Saul, Shaul Hamelech, who tells his baggage handler, "Stab me with the sword." And what does the baggage handler say? "I won't do it." I won't extend my hand against the Mashiach Yisrael, the anointed one of Israel. To which Shaul responds with what? Falling on his own sword. Now, according to the story, as it's retold by the Nar Amaleki, the Amalekite lad, Saul was writhing in pain, but very much still alive. When he says to the Amalekite lad, finish me off. And what does the Amalekite guy do? Chops off Saul's head. And then, you know, says to, to David... Behold, I killed your enemy. And what does David say? Have this guy killed. So he kills him. The Naamaleki. It didn't end well for him. Um, now, did Saul do the right thing in falling on the sword? So the Gemara addresses this point, and basically the conclusion is that suicide uh, is not the preferred choice. Rather, you should go down fighting with honor, legitimate fighting, but if you're concerned about mutilation of your body or your corpse, for that matter, after you're dead, or a special uh, intense brutality by the other side, then you may have a legitimate cause to, to, to kill yourself. Um, but there, there isn't a, a long tradition in Judaism or in the, history of, uh, the national history of Jews about uh, committing suicide rather than fighting. I mean, in, in more recent times... You have um, the fellows from the Irgun who were going to commit suicide and blow up the jail, but Rabbi Levin came to meet to to to, to give them last rites to Shema Yisrael, so they didn't want him to die, so they didn't they didn't commit suicide. Instead, they were executed by the British. You have occasional stories, but yeah. What about well, but the guys who were buried with um, Menachem Begin? 
Right, so Friedman and I forget the other ones, Epstein maybe. Uh, right, so you have occasions where people did either suicide or suicide by cop um, where they lost their lives that way. It was not the common theme. It was not a, 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 it's only something you'll find among those to the far right uh, of the spectrum. Okay. Now, uh, the war has not really begun in earnest because all that happened was there was a small garrison in Jerusalem, there was the, pro- the, the procurator at Jerusalem, and there are riots that get out of control, so the procurator runs off to Caesarea. But the Jews haven't won anything yet. There's going to be a, a, a response by the Romans. So what is that response? Cestius Gallus, the governor of Syria, who had overall responsibility of Judea. Remember, there's a procurator, but he's a relatively low-level public servant. The governor of Syria is a much higher-level figure in the bureaucracy of Rome. So he's got to do something. What does he do? He sends an army down um, into, into Judea, where he has initial success in conquering Tsipori, Caesarea, Jaffa, Lida, and Afek. So, he's marching... Huh? That's pretty good. Now, a lot of these places went down without a fight. Most of the Galilee did not join the revolution. The northern revolt only was pockets here and there. Most towns did not put up a resistance, as we shall see. So it was relatively simple for Cestius Gallus to move through the north of the country, get to the coastline, meet up with, with the procurator at Caesarea, move down the coastline towards, uh, towards Yafo and Lod, uh, and then inland towards Jerusalem. Having gotten close to Jerusalem and laid the, uh, the, the groundwork for a siege to, to cut it off from the rest of the countryside, for whatever reason, um, Gallus turned around and went back. Uh, interestingly, at the Battle of Geva, he went to war against uh, Simon Bargiora, Shimon Bargiora, who was one of the three leading revolutionaries. We're going to talk about Elazar Bar Shimon, Simon Bargiora, and uh, John of Gishala, uh, Yochanan of Gushchalav. These are the three leading revolutionaries who are, have um, armies at their disposal, like the Irgun, the Lechi, and the like. You know, these are the, the armies of, uh, of the Judeans. So Simon Bargiora does battle with, with Gallus and does him real damage. He kills five, they kill 500 Roman soldiers. So the, the, the onward march to Jerusalem is, is reversed and there is a battle, really an ambush at Beit Choron where Elazar Bar Shimon is the leading Jewish figure. He controls the Jewish army, he ambushes the Romans and supposedly 6,000 Roman soldiers were massacred. What was especially um, interesting is that the Aquila, which is the Roman eagle, the, sta- the, the eagle on top of the flag, the standard, was lost. And that's an ominous sign. Like in the Civil War, that the, the, the drummer boy held the flag, and they marched out to the front, and the drummer boy always got shot and killed, and then somebody else had to hold the flag. The flag shouldn't fall, you know, the Confederate flag or the Union flag. So that's the same thing in Roman times that the standard, the, the, the pole with the flag on top of the, with the eagle, should never be lost. If it's lost, it's like uh, all, uh, all is lost. Okay? And yet, the Jews captured it. One of only, I think, six or seven examples in the history of, of, of the Roman military where they lost their, their, uh, their eagle. There's another example. The Germans 
uh-huh. in Claudius's time, mm-hmm. they had for three or four years, and part of the negotiations afterwards yeah. was to get the eagle. They go back, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was very important to them. So uh, this was the, the standard of the, the 12th legion, the Fulminata legion. Uh, in truth, the fact that the, 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 the soldiers of Gallus ended up losing to a band of rebels, not a trained army, but a band of rebels, is not all that surprising, because the Syrian-based troops were notoriously undisciplined, and it wasn't their countryside, it was the Jewish countryside. So the topography worked in favor of the Jews, and the the opposition soldiers, the the, the Syrian-based Roman soldiers, were not all that effective. Other legions would have to be brought into the country to win the war. Those would be the 5th, 10th, and 15th legions, as we shall see. Okay. Um, Elazar Bar Shimon, who was a Galilean nationalist, and remember, most of the leading nationalists were themselves Galilean, not from Jerusalem or from the south. He was the commander of Jewish forces at Beit Choron. He looted the bodies of the dead Roman soldiers and used that wealth to achieve prominence in the internal Jerusalem battles to follow. This is an important point. How do you become a rebel leader? By paying rebels to fight for you. Okay, ISIS has a problem on their hand. You know, they have to raise $40 million a month to, to pay their, their mercenaries. That's why they have to be involved in looting antiquities and the like. They need money. They sell oil on the black market. All right, so also in, in the days of the, of the Jewish revolt, Lahavdil, Havdalot, okay, if you wanted to have a mercenary army, you had to pay them. So Elazar Shimon got rich off of the, the spoils of the Battle of Beit Choron. Why, why all these guys from Galilee? What, what made them so they, on top of Yashke and all these other... What, what, they, the because the focus in the Galilee was not religion. It was nationalism. It still isn't. Okay. There are not too many from people in the Galilee, right? So, um, uh, it's true. So... In, in Jerusalem, you had a certain cosmopolitan element that would be against revolution. Um, in the coastal cities, you have Hellenistic Jews, or you know, people who, are, who have grown accustomed to living with Gentiles. In the Galilee, Jews lived in close, close proximity um, and without pagans in their midst, for the most part, in the close settlements, and they didn't want to see somebody else in charge of their country. And they're willing to fight uh, to the death. So the Galilee was a hotbed of, uh, of people with unrealistic expectations about this war. Unrealistic expectations. Okay. Um, after the Battle of Beit Choron in the year 66, late in October, many Jews got excited that they could actually defeat Rome. And even non-zealots were swept up in this euphoria. You can't blame them. Early success uh, gives people the impression that this, the success will continue. And maybe uh, either there'll be some negotiated settlement in their favor or outright victory. Okay, now coins were minted with a new dating system according to the years of the revolt. You know, Shana Aleph, Cherut Yerushalayim, to the first year, to the, to the liberation of Jerusalem. Similar coins we find in the Bar Kochba revolt, uh, where they would be minted, Lecherut Tzion, Lecherut Yerushalayim. So, the, the introduction of a new calendar 
is an indicator that in the eyes of at least some of the people, we've reached like the, the apocalyptic stage, the messianic stage. The past is behind us, and this is a new era. Little do they know, yeah, it's going to be a new era, but an, an era of galut and uh, destruction. Okay. Late in the year 66, the Jews begin to organize their war effort. And the leadership at this point is, somewhat surprisingly, still in the hands of the moderate high priests and the Pharisees, not the ultra-nationalist zealots. So, in other words, like the Haganah is still in charge, not the Irgun. Because most people were not Kanaim, uh, you know, to, to the point of, uh, of ludicrous expectations of victory. Most were level-headed and, you know, clear-thinking. And although they were ready to fight, they had their, their, an agenda, a political agenda. Not ultimate victory of, of total victory, but some negotiated deal where Rome gives concessions to the Jews and possibly some degree of autonomy. That's what the moderate nationalists want. And they're still in control of the country. Okay. Elazar Bar Shimon, who had been the, the, uh, the leader of the, of, the, of the band of rebels at Beit Choron, he tried to get a prominent appointment in the, the cabinet in the year 67 after his victory. But Ananus ben Ananus, who was a, the high priest, he refused. So the Sadducean high priest, who, is, who together with some moderate Pharisees is, is running the government, refuses to give the Secretary of Defense portfolio to a, a hardcore rebel. Elazar, however, keeps hold of a power base in the temple. He refuses to leave. And the inner courtyard of the temple remains in the hands of fairly extreme nationalists. So into the city of Jerusalem, you, and even on the Temple Mount, you have these factional divides even early in the war. Okay? So, what about the Galilee? And what happens when the Romans decide to send real military forces to, do, to crush this revolution? <laughs> that not just the forces of Gallus, the governor of Syria, but real Roman military forces under good quality generals. What's going to happen? And who are they facing? Well, first of all, Rome had to attack from the north. There was no choice but to attack from the north. They weren't going to attack from the sea, from the west. There is no way of attacking from the east because Rome doesn't have forces to the east. Uh, from the south, they don't want to go through the desert. It's going to have to come from the north with troops, ships landing at Caesarea and, uh, or from, at Antioch and coming down the coast into uh, Judea proper. So... So, in the north is Syria, yeah. So then, they had their ally there. Okay, so, well, they have provinces. These are, these are these Roman provinces. So, if the attack is coming from the north, then which province of Eretz Yisrael must be defended uh, and fortified in order to forestall any uh, intrusion of foreign troops into the country? The Golan. the Golan and the Galilee. The Golan and the Galilee. That's going to be the key. So who is assigned to be the commander of the Galilee? Josephus. Josephus. What was the story of Josephus? We don't have to go into his whole life story, but basically uh, he was from a high priestly lineage. He, uh, he claimed that Matityahu was his great-great-great-great-grandfather, so he's a Hasmonean uh, by descent. Um, he is a Jerusalemite, and he comes from basically a Romanophile family. He spent time in Rome in the 50s and 60s. He's born in the year, roughly in the year 37. 
in his teenage years, in his, his youth and early adulthood, he claimed to have studied all the philosophies of Judaism and decided eventually that the Pharisees were the best of, of all of them. Meaning he was a Sadducee at one point, a Pharisee, maybe he dabbled in Essenism. Uh, he did it all, that's what he says. He, and he was a Tamar Chacham, according to his own story. He knows the Halakha, he knows the Torah. All right, but he goes to Rome, comes back from Rome, and is appointed as the commander of the Galilee. John of Gishala, or Yochanan of Gushchalav, Gushchalav being a small town in uh, the eastern Galilee, suspects that Josephus is not really an opponent of Rome, that he's a Benedict Arnold. Um, and Josephus narrowly survives multiple attempts on his life by John. So this uh, rebel figure is accusing the commander of being insufficiently nationalist. It's like a member of the Lehi saying that like a Palmach leader is uh, really in cahoots with the Arabs. This is while they're trying to defend. Yes. Okay. Now, the, the Roman attack is going to be a massive one. Nero, who is still emperor at this point in time, he hasn't died yet, um, he assigns Vespasian and Vespasian's son Titus to be the commanders of the army. And three whole legions are at their disposal, the 5th, 10th, and 15th. The 10th is the most famous, the Fratensis, because it would later be stationed in Judea permanently. So they also had cavalry, and they had auxiliary forces provided by friendly kings. This is an interesting point. Rome had its provinces, but it also had satellite you know, vassal states, which Judea once was in the days of Herod and, and, and Agrippa I. Okay? And these vassal kings were expected to contribute uh, soldiers, you know, troops, when Rome uh, prosecuted its important wars. Uh, the truth of the matter is, Jews did this in the good old days. Jews did this on behalf of the Seleucids back in the days of the Hasmoneans. And the Herodians did it on behalf of Rome a generation or two earlier. So you have um, client states in the vicinity of Judea who are adding their forces to that of the Roman legion. Well, let's find out. Now, in addition to, to just other client states, you also had Agrippus himself. Agrippus II donated some of his mercenaries to the war against the Jews. So here a Jewish king, a Jewish client king of the Romans, is giving forces against the Jewish state. Okay. The total number of forces is estimated at 60,000. 60,000 is a, is a nice big number. Is it an insurmountable number? No. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, how many Jews lived in Judea at this time? And how many were of military age? It could be mustered to fight in a battle? Well, it's hard for us to figure this out, but 60,000 is not... Uh, a million. I mean, uh, you can't blame the Jews for thinking that they had a chance. Weren't there like two million who lived in the whole uh, Roman Empire around the Middle East in those days? So it is estimated, yeah. So it's a lot of Jews. Now, Sipori declared they were not, not at all. That's the problem. Okay, the Gemara says that Lo the temple was not destroyed until Nasu Chavdalad Kitot Kitot. The Jews were divided into 24 different subdivisions. Those were not necessarily divided along religious lines, but could be, and 24 could be an exaggerated number, but it means that politically, the Jews were very much at odds with each other, and that's why they, they, they lost. Was there a king that was supposedly totally Amorites, Jewish, and you always won the battles because he had obvious with the Jews? I've got what it was when you mentioned 
it up. It's about Achav? Okay, so, now, Tzipori, which is a very important Jewish city in the Galilee, and would, in the Tanitic times, uh, be uh, one of the, the, the homes of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. So it's a very important city, Sepphoris. It declared its allegiance to Rome even before the hostilities began. Why would a city do this? To avoid destruction. If the, if the city fathers, the elders, uh, you know, wave the white flag and tell Titus or Vespasian, we are not participating in this revolt, then no, no damage, the, the commercial life can go on, normal life can go on. But if they don't surrender immediately, uh, you can have tremendous loss of life, which is what's going to happen in some of these other cities. Now, in Tiberias, there was division among the city leadership as to whether or not to follow rebel instructions. The rebels told the, 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 the Tiberius uh, city council to commit certain acts of symbolic violence against Roman rule, and there was hesitation. The Hellenistic urban elites were pro-Roman, while the urban poor and provincial were zealot. The city council hesitated, but eventually followed the rebels' orders. Uh, Yeshu, Jesus, uh, Yeshu ben Safias, was the leader of the faction who accused Josephus of being insufficiently nationalist. So like John of Gushchalav, Yochanan Gushchalav, so too you have Yeshu of ben Safias, who says, we have our eye on this commander, we think he's no good. Something's not right here. Something's not kosher about him. Yeah. Oh, Yeshu, the, the 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 Christian, he's dead forty years already. No, he's de- he's long gone. Okay. What is Yosef ben Matityahu. Okay. That's a point that you just mentioned. The Christians really had no part to play, or they ran off. They ran off to Pella on the other side of the river mm-hmm. uh, in the year sixty-six, mm-hmm. uh, or in the year sixty-eight, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, He he spoke uh, Greek. He had been to Rome. He came from an aristocratic family that was high priestly, which had long ties to the Roman administration. If he's at the top, coming from the north, yeah. and the Romans are not getting through, or he's fighting them, he may see the as well. Well, we'll see that he doesn't really fight. He doesn't, he doesn't really do much fighting. And also bear in mind that the, the northern revolt was in the hands of extreme revolutionaries, but the national leadership down in Jerusalem, which was dictating policy for the whole country, was relatively moderate. So when you have someone who's regarded as a softy being appointed by a moderate government uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the nation's capital, and you are uh, much more to the right, so you're going you're gonna to accuse the appointees of the federal government of being... Uh, Weak, if not downright treasonous. Okay, so let's see what happens. So the revolutionary party in the Galilee focused on social grievances, on democratic concerns that their voices were not being heard, that only the the elite uh, in the in the capital were controlling uh, affairs of state, and also matters of religion. But I said religion wasn't so important in the Galil. It wasn't Torah as like a a divine document, so much as it was the ancestral laws. What's the difference between the, uh, focusing on the ancestral laws versus focusing on the, you know, God's Torah? It's culture. It's culture. Right. It's, it's, it's not so much like 
you know, African ancestor, ancestor worship. That's not what it is. But it's just, it's a devotion to whatever was important to my father and my grandfather is important to me. God aside. Okay, yeah. A, a lot of heterodoxy is the same way. Whatever was important uh, Judaically to my father is going to be important to me because I love my father. Not because of issues of God. Okay. Now, the battle was supposed to take place at Garrus, near Tsipori. But it didn't because most of Josephus' men ran away. They fled. Seeing that they were outnumbered, they didn't want to die. Josephus himself takes refuge at the fortress at Jotapada, Yodfat. Okay? There, now, there's a phony story that's recorded in Josephus about how he ended up switching teams. Uh, that uh, there was, uh, they were running out of food, and there were only uh, 40 men left, and they drew lots to see who would kill whom, uh, and that the last man would commit suicide, and they would all die. A, a, a glorious death. Now, what Josephus claims is that after the 38 guys died, there were only two of them left, and the last two guys decided they weren't going to kill each other, they were going to just surrender. Did that really happen? Nobody knows. All we know is that Josephus switched teams. And this story about a glorious end with martyrdom and suicides, it could be made up completely, because that's the way they did it. You know, that's the way they, they told a good story back then. Um, he, it also, uh, in, in, in the version that Josephus records... He has a prophecy that Vespasian would become emperor. Bear in mind, this is the year 67. Nero is still emperor. There would be several emperors in between Nero and Vespasian who died shortly one after another because they were killed. It was the, the, the 68, 69 is known as the year of the four emperors because they all died in quick succession. So for Josephus to prophetically claim he knew Vespasian would become, become the, uh, the Caesar, uh, that's a imp- very impressive thing. Now, what's the rabbinic literature equivalent of that? Uh, no, who, 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 Yochanan ben Zakkai goes to Vespasian and says, I know you're going to be the emperor one day. So Josephus has a version of that story and the rabbinic literature has a version of the story. But the rabbinic literature was like 250 years after Josephus. Uh, correct. Both stories are bogus. I mean, <laughs> nobody had, I mean, that's not to say that nobody uh, predicted Vespasian would rise to power. It wasn't yes, such a. F- it, you could have guessed it, but 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 prophetic uh, wisdom that already was gone in the days of Chagai Zechariah Malachi. Okay, all right. Um, the siege of Yodfat lasted for forty-seven days. It began in June of the sixty-seven and ended on July twentieth. It was the longest of any siege of the war, other than that of Jerusalem and Masada. It was the bloodiest battle of the war. Huh? Beitar is the next war, is is the Bakolpa year. So, uh, we're, so we're talking about in the first war, Yerushalayim, Masada, and then Yodfat. Beitar. It's not clear exactly how long the siege of Beitar lasted. It may not have lasted that long. It was it was horribly bloody when it ended. Okay. What about Gamla and the Golan? Gamla didn't last very long. We'll see. Okay. Um, it was the bloodiest of, of all the battles other than, other than that of Jerusalem. Most of the inhabitants of the city were killed or enslaved. Yodfat was on an isolated hill. It was surrounded by ravines on three sides, only accessible from the north. There were impressive man-made fortifications on the north side. The problem was there was no ready supply of water, which would be problematic uh, if you're going to have a, pr- a protracted siege. 
Josephus claims in an exaggerated fashion that there were 40,000 people who lived in the city. But archaeological evidence that was uh, extracted from the ground in the last 20 years has uh, determined that a more reasonable number is about 7,000 people were at Yodfat. Uh, there was a ramp, a battering ram. There were darts being shot from the Jewish side onto the Romans. Uh, Vespasian himself was injured in that battle. There was scalding oil poured over the side, like uh, in all the movies you see where they have a, a siege works. So you have the, 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 the tower, you have the battering ram, and then the other side, what does the other side do? Aside from shoot arrows, you also have boulders thrown over the side, and you have um, fire that is set to the gate, in addition to the battering ram to try to burn down the gate. How do um, the defenders try to uh, repulse the battering ram? By placing chaff, straw, or sand, sandbags behind the, the wall uh, behind, to, 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 to dull the force, to blunt the force. There's, a, there's an exterior wall, an interior wall, and sand in between. But fire ends up burning through all that, pushing its way through, and eventually the wall collapses. The Game of Thrones. Which I don't watch, but I'm sure it has a, it has a lot of that. All that stuff. Okay, so many, many Jews are killed. According to Josephus, twelve thousand Jewish women and children are made slaves, and there was only one Roman fatality. Now, only one Roman fatality is not very impressive from a Jewish perspective. That's what Josephus is claiming. We don't really know. Uh, now, Titus ordered the city. It could be there was only one. I mean, who knows? But you can exaggerate if you're writing for the Romans. You could say Why they never lost Romans anybody. Look, look very you. impressive. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. So Titus ordered that the city be destroyed, and the dead Jews went unburied for a year. This uh, was originally um, thought to maybe be like some kind of exaggeration, but it's not. Uh, it was true. The, the corpses were lying on the field for a long, long time. And um, a similar thing is told in rabbinic literature about after the Beitar siege that the, the, the corpses went unburied for 14 years. That's an exaggeration. Maybe it was 14 months, maybe it was 14 days. I don't know what it was. But uh, the, the brachav hatova hametiv in the benching is supposedly uh, composed and enacted on account of the, uh, the miracle that when the, the bodies were finally allowed to be buried, lo hisrichu, they didn't decompose. That's the, the, the famous miracle of the dead of Betar. But the, but the archaeological evidence at Yodfat is that there were bones strewn all over the place, indicating that there was no burial, but rather just allowing things to remain as is after the, 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 uh, the act of carnage was over. And many of the bones... Um, indicated blunt force trauma or uh, slicing, that the, the people were, were cut to pieces by sharp, sharp instruments. So there was mutilation of corpses too. Okay. Now, after Jotapata, after the Battle of Yodfat, Tiberius, uh, Tiberius surrendered without a fight. Remember, that city had been of mixed opinion, uh, rebel versus moderate. Um, and seeing that the flow, the momentum now favored Rome, it pays not to put up a fight, but rather to wave the white flag and say we're surrendering. Uh, then this was followed by the capture of Tarakia, followed by the capture of Gamla and Har Tavor. Gamla was initially loyal to Rome, but the locals were influenced by the zealots and agreed to fight. 
So this is an example of outside agitators t- uh, coercing a passive city into participating in rebellion. The battle was fierce. The population of, of uh, Gamla is estimated at around 3,000 people. Some died in combat, but others died, and for those of you who have been to Gamla, you'll understand what I'm talking about, they died trying to escape down the sharp ravine on the north side of the city. Can you reasonably walk or run down that ravine? No, it's too sharp. So people who were being forced by the, uh, the flow of the battle up the hill, uh, when they get to the top, there's nowhere to go but down. And they died. Um, Gush Chalav uh, was the last Galilean town to hold out. And uh, Yochanan of Gush Chalav, we know, was one of the, the three major rebel leaders. When, uh, when Titus came to Gush Chalav, he surrounded the city, and the siege continued on to Shabbos. On the Sabbath, John taunted Titus not to enter, at least not on the Sabbath, quote, not so much out of regard to the seventh day as to his own preservation. It means not that the Shmira Shabbos was the issue, but rather John was taunting Titus that if you try to enter the city, we'll kill you. That you're a dead man. Now, when you're losing the war, to talk tough, to have, you know, uh, trash talking like that, doesn't really serve a good purpose. It might make you feel good, uh, but it doesn't win the battle. What happened to the city of Gush Chalav? So, it was taken by the Romans, and John has to flee to Jerusalem. So, like Elazar Bar Shimon, um, and also like Sh- Simon Bar Giora eventually, he makes his way to Yerushalayim. So, a northern revolutionary leader makes his way to the south. The south where the moderate government is in control. All right. Now, by the late of the year, late in the year sixty-seven, the entire Galilee was under Roman control. So the northern revolt lasted a very short time. It was a complete failure, uh, with only several significant battles lost entirely by the Jews. Okay. Now, Simon Bar Giora, the third of the three big uh, revolutionaries, was a low-class provincial rebel who helped fight in the north and delay the arrival of the army of Titus and Vespasian to Jerusalem. So it was like a stall tactic, keep, them, keep the, uh, the Romans at bay for a while. When he got to Jerusalem, he was also rejected from a leadership position by a moderate administration which sought a peace deal with Rome. He hung out at, at Masada until the Zealot Temple siege of the year 68, which we'll talk about next week at length, when the, the hardliners force their way into the city and basically kill off the moderates. Okay, so um, those rebels who survived the loss in the Galilee, some of them went to Jaffa. What did they do at Jaffa? They refortified it, because remember it had been captured by Cestius Gallus early in the days of the war. And it was a mixed city. Some Gentile population, some Jewish population. But what did they do? They conducted pirate raids on the Mediterranean to make the sea totally unnavigable for all men. It's an interesting idea that this war is not just a land war, but it's also a war at sea, and you have a Jewish navy. So you have these Galilean rebels functioning as Mediterranean pirates, uh, 
to do, really to accomplish two two purposes. One, brigandry to you know steal to get supplies, you know, because you need money to fund a war, you need you need material and that is easily taken from commercial ships who are lightly defended. So this is uh, like, you know, highwaymen, but on the high seas. That's one point. The other is to pre- try to prevent the arrival of reinforcements of Roman, Roman legions by the sea. That if the eastern Mediterranean is hostile waters for Roman troop ships, then maybe they won't show up. Okay. Uh, now the northern rebels, John of Gushchalav and Elazar Bar Shimon, they, when they get to Jerusalem... They have with them their goons. And this means that at the end of the year 67, going into the year 68, there is an untenable situation in Jerusalem because those in command of the Southern Revolt do not look kindly upon these uh, interlopers, they would call them you know, the Prost Yidden from the north, uh, the low-class Jews of the north. So there's going to be a clash. It's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, the city was not surrounded by hostile forces yet. There was no siege around Yerushalayim. So, uh, but the Romans are still pretty far away. So anyone who comes into Jerusalem, the, the, the gates of the city are not closed. There's a free flow of human traffic, Jewish human traffic, in and out of the city, including people who are politically not to the liking of the national government. So, what's going to happen? You're going to have a clash. Who's going to win this clash? Well, only those who are willing to engage in acts of brutality. The less moral scruples you have about dealing with fellow Jews in a civil war, the more likely you are to win in that civil war. Of course, the, more, the, 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 the bloodier the civil war, the less likely you are to win in the overall war against a foreign enemy. And that's going to be the outcome of the whole story. Okay, um, just a few last points for tonight. When, when the city of Jerusalem is like the, the haven for failed revolutionaries in the north, it seems like we're ignoring altogether the rest of the southern countryside. Like there's no mention of the, 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 the land of Judea proper south of Samaria other than Yerushalayim. Why is that the case? Why are we only focusing on the city? The answer is because for the most part the Jewish army was not a good field army. It couldn't engage the Roman uh, legion in the open field. One side was numerically superior and in terms of training and tactics superior. So the only thing the Jewish army could fall back upon was surviving long-term siege and hoping for the occasional ambush when they catch the opponent off guard like at Beit Choron but you couldn't have open field fighting in the Shvela in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the, the plain or even in the Judean highlands this to be honest was true even in Maccabean times if we go back to what we said about Judah Maccabee and also John and Simon did they ever really fight uh, major battles in the open field against the Seleucid army? Uh, once or twice we have in the, in the 160s. But for the most part, these were ambushes and um, you know, n- not uh, a phalanx of troops opposing another phalanx of troops. 
same thing. Yeah, uh, 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 but. When you, ha- when you have asymmetrical war, you're not going to have conventional battles. And that was the case in the war of 66 to 70. So falling back onto fortified cities, well, how many fortified cities were there? The truth is there were others aside from Jerusalem. Who had done the fortifying of those cities? So it wasn't done uh, on a, like a rush basis in the year 66. These were positions that had been fortified by Herod years and years earlier with permission of the Romans because they were garrisoned by Roman troops. So, yes, there were were positions that were of military significance in Judea uh, outside of Yerushalayim. So, truth is, Beitar had already been fortified. Um, There was... uh, Several positions along the Yam HaMelech, including the vicinity of Ein Gedi. Masada itself was a, was a Herodian fortress. Herodian. Uh, Herodion, another Herodian fortress. Um, and uh, Hamat. Bechan? No, it's in the north, and, and it was lost early on. It was not even a Jewish city. It was Scythopolis. It was mostly pagan. Um, and which is why, by the way, in Tanitic times, it was considered not part of Eretz Israel, and you didn't have to take Trumas and Maestris there. Uh, but you have fortified positions in the south, but we don't hear much about them, because everybody's falling back onto the major city, knowing that that's going to be the last stand. And if you're going to live at all, uh, it's going to be by surviving under a Jerusalem siege. Okay, one final point. Do people in the countryside, or for that matter, even in the cities, change their attitude about the fate of the war as they see that it's not going all that well? Okay. So the answer, you say, is of course. I don't think so. All right. The problem is... Bernie Sanders thinks People, even in the face of... uh, defeat or, or impending defeat don't have much of a choice in switching sides. If you're a VIP, you can get away with it. If you're Josephus, you can defect and all of a sudden, instead of being a, com- a Jewish commander of the Galilee, be some kind of uh, ivory tower historian in Rome. Yochanan ben Zakkai, if, vi- if you're a VIP rabbi like Yochanan ben Zakkai, you can go to the other side, wave the white flag, and ask for Yavne some place to study Torah. But for the most part, if you're an average citizen, your surrender is of no consequence to the Romans. So you really, once the war starts, have only one hope, and that's to win. Yes, not everyone's going to die in battle. Of course, there'll be plenty of survivors, but the bulk of the population lives to tell, live, lives to tell the story. But you're going to suffer as on the losing team. There's no point in defecting. So only a limited number of people bother to um, profess allegiance to the Roman cause. What ends up happening to those people, that limited audience, is that they're put in detention facilities. One of those detention facilities, and we learned about this a few years ago in the, in the Pirkei class, was Yavne. One of the theories about Yavne is that it was not a place of scholarship prior to the year 70, or, or any, uh, it was not known to, to any extent to be a place of rabbinic learning, but rather it was a detention facility where 
those who tried to switch teams were housed um, as you know of the enemy's of the enemy's side, but not actual enemy. And that Yochanan ben Zakkai was sent there, not that he requested to go there, because he falls into this category: someone who switches allegiances uh, and thus isn't going to get killed and isn't going to die in battle but also isn't especially loved. So they were under something of an arrest, a detention, but a more pleasant experience than getting your head chopped off at the end of the siege of Jerusalem. Huh? It might have been like a, you know, a day camp where they could watch it. Right. Uh, it, was a, it was like a, a DP camp, basically. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we'll, yeah. so we'll, we'll stop here. And next time, we'll continue with the zealot uh, uh, attack on Jerusalem, which is the key turning point in the whole war in the year 66 when the tough guys oust the moderates.